I'm grateful that we could be here this morning. Um, that last, last song, uh, it just kind of churned some stuff in me, so I'm going to call a little bit of an audible as I, uh, as I enter into the sermon in Nehemiah chapter 3 this morning, because I think that there's something that the Lord is doing, and I know that many of us know each other's stories, and we've sensed a level of suffering challenge. Maybe we've encountered some real deep struggles, or we're in the midst of them, or they're on the cusp or threshold of our lives. And and this call to, to build an altar stone by stone is really a sense of what God's doing in, in the book of Nehemiah, building something to last. And so part of the entry point I want to consider this morning is, is the Lord was just doing a work in my own heart, is Psalm 42. It's a psalm that's um, just kind of a, written by a worship leader um, who is not doing so great. Life is hard. There are some significant challenges as he looks at the context of life that surrounds him. And, and ultimately, I think that's true for all of us, right? That the life that surrounds us creates or can create an internal turmoil within us. We see that there are things that just don't mesh, right? We, we know God's character. We confess on a regular basis. He is good and loving and faithful. It's like that song sung, we've never been alone. And yet, our hearts, if we're frank with one another or even at least honest enough with ourselves, we've felt alone, we felt like there's a gap and a distance in our relationship with God. And so there's just this discrepancy that, that tends to continue to mount, that, that drives us to places of concern and uncertainty. Psalm 42 starts off that very same way. Here's how the psalmist, in one of the most beautiful ways I think describes it, here's what he says, as the deer pants for streams of living water, Soul, my soul, pants for you, O oh God. The, the image, you know, I, I'm a deer hunter, and, and here's what you know. If you shoot a deer and they're wounded, they tend to go towards water. Desire is to find thirst as an attempt for survival. So what you're getting in this imagery is not this Bambi running through the woods looking for a little drink by a spring. The image is a wounded animal in desperate need for survival, panting for streams of water. That's how the psalmist describes his soul. My soul pants for you, O God. And then he continues on, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Here's how he describes his particular situation. My tears have been my food day and night, while they all said to me all day long, where is your God? Often when we look and encounter the challenges of our life, that's really the question that's not just asked of us by others, if God was good, how could this be happening? But we're internally asking that ourselves. It's like this war that's going on inside where we have these multiple voices that are just competing for an audience. And that audience is our heart. Where are our affections? Where are our desires and longings? God, where are you? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. 
how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise and a multitude-keeping festival. The psalm writer writes that the biggest challenge that he faces is that he remembered what it felt like when things were good. When he used to lead God's people and make their way to the house of God and enjoy the presence of God. And, and that actually, as he describes it, makes his suffering harder. <laughs> because he knew that it used to be easier. That there was this palpable expression of God's presence in his life in such a way that he just couldn't wait to get more of God. And yet life, in its unpredictable ways had intruded in such a way, and we don't know the circumstances, but things had become so difficult and so hard that that feeling of closeness and excitement and joy with God seemed lost. And ultimately, in the midst of the darkness, felt unrecoverable. (laughs) Will I ever feel that way again? Verse 5, he says, why are you downcast, oh my soul? You get a window into this dialogue in this guy's life. And why are you in turmoil within me? And he's, he's almost trying to convince himself of what he knows to be true but doesn't feel. Hope in God, for I will yet praise him again, my salvation and my God. My soul is downcast within me. And then here's the, the, the shifting point in the middle of verse 5. Therefore, I remember you. From the land of the Jordan and Hermon and Mount Mazar, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls and all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Verse eight, by day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is within me, a prayer to the God of my life. What a great picture of really the essence of what God is doing as he works in the confusing, uncertain uh, challenges and tragedies of the world, we find ourselves wrestling ultimately with the presence of God. Where is he as these things are happening? And so what I'd like to ask us today as that song encourages us is let's just see. As we trust God, what altar he's going to build? Is it going to be that place of steadfast faithfulness where God commands his steadfast faithfulness towards us? Or are there places which there are vulnerabilities, fragility in our life that moves us to allowing the voice of our feelings to tend to generate our understanding of God above and beyond allowing God to help us understand our feelings. There are multiple voices that exist in every single one of us this morning. And I think Nehemiah's call, as you see it even through the rhythm of Scripture, is this call both backwards and forwards. Remember who I am. Because I don't change is what the testimony of the scriptures is. God God does not alter his character for anyone nor anything. He is not pressured by the challenges of the world to shift 
how he operates in his directed steadfast love towards his people. But what is changing and what does end up fluctuating is my heart. That's what's unstable. Unstable. Unstable, I think is the word. That's what's unstable is there's, there's just shiftingness. And like the old psalmist wrote, I'm, I'm prone to wander. I, I know it. I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. There is this place where God begins to, and we're in Texas, right? Lasso us back together so that we're drawn into this place of intimacy and affection and an understanding of the presence of God, not just being sufficient, but being desirable. That's what we want, this closeness. As Jared preached last week, and just as we've seen in two chapters of the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah's call and commission and this preparation that has come through, through prayer and just a deep desire to see God do a work beyond what he could imagine. And stepping in and looking and realizing that we can never keep suffering at arm's length. That we see it and just by the very fact that we have had a window into seeing some level of suffering means that there is a compulsion through the lenses of the gospel to engage in it. It's not as though we say, well, that's really hard. Go and be fed. Let me pray for you. We say to one another, I'm in. I believe that the gospel is going to work in each other's lives in transformative ways. And I I can't wait to get a front row seat to see the work that the Lord's going to do in each other's hearts. And so Nehemiah is churning with this desire to do those things. And he he does all this stuff, takes these risks, moves. And then Jared's sermon last week, just this desire to establish the work of our hands, the, the preparation and all of these things as, as God is working to, to get us ready and get, get the Israelites ready and to, uh, to, to start recovering the reality of what God is doing in their lives. And so there's that prayer, that longing, that preparation. And now chapter three, the work begins. Chapter three, anybody ever do like the year-long Bible memory plan? Like you just read it through a year? Anybody? Yes. Yeah, we've all sort of made that like New Year's resolution. I'm going to read the Bible in a year. And then February, you know, we get to the book of Numbers and we're like, yeah, this ain't going to happen. Nehemiah chapter three feels like that. We gloss over this chapter. Why? Because 80% of the names we can't pronounce. Right? I mean, it's just difficult to even figure out how and what. And so there's 50, 50 names in chapter three, just a, a list of people after people after people. And you're like, what does this even mean? Why is it even significant? And I think what we get here is, is another window or an avenue into how God works through work. We've talked already before that God uh, is working as we look at the suffering around us and we engage and we can't keep suffering at arm's length, but we move forward in it. But now we're in, we're in the work and we see how messy and dirty it is where we we move from our soapbox to the trenches, which is I really think what Nehemiah 3 is about is this sense in which we can't keep it out here. But once you start the work, the work starts in you. Here's what I mean. 
We've all been there. We've all been in places where we have these noble ideas of, I just can't wait to be a servant of God and be used by him in tremendous ways. And then you meet a person that's working alongside of you that just rubs you the wrong way, right? You meet challenges and struggles. The work isn't as glamorous as we expected it to be. Welcome to church, right? There's that place where it just doesn't feel like it's quite working out the way that we thought that it would. That's Nehemiah chapter three. A scholar wrote it this way as he was struggling with his, his parents had been married for 41 years and decided just because they wanted to, to throw in the towel and get a divorce. After 41 years of marriage, they decided to call it quits. And that just created a lot of turmoil. And, you know, he had this perspective of his parents being just on this pedestal and, and how significant their relationship with God was. And, and having that all thrown away just threw his life really into sort of a tailspin. And as he was processing these things and trying to understand how suffering that he was experiencing, he had no control over, here were his words. If the foundation of our happiness is our vocation, our relationships, or our money, then suffering takes the source of our joy away from us. But if our ultimate value is life in God, then suffering drives us closer to the source of our joy. I think that part of what we're going to see in Nehemiah chapter 3, and just in case you're worried, I'm not reading the whole chapter, okay? Probably because I couldn't pronounce half the names either. But nonetheless, there's this sense of realizing that there's kind of a, a value shift that happens as the people of God do the work of God. And God does work as we do the work. And what ends up happening is we, we start to see areas of development, growth, change, sanctification, whatever we want to call it, in the lives of those who are engaging in the work or watching the work be engaged in. So remember, we had four main focuses of what I think the book of Nehemiah brings us. One is you can't keep suffering at arm's length. The second one I think is critical this morning. Decisions and actions please God, but none are truly noble. Humanity is alive and well in every single one of us. And so let's look at verses one through six just briefly. And I want to I wanna consider how in the process of doing the work that God had called them to do, the, the real work begins to bubble to the surface. Verse 1, Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassaneah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors and its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakos, required. And next to them, Meshuhalam, there you go, the son of Berechiah, the son of Maheshelabel, 
Man, this is, I'm glad I'm not reading the whole chapter. Repaired, and next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired, and next to them, the Tekoites repaired. And look at this. But their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. So you get these people that are in the process, 50 names, and they're actually moving counterclockwise, and they're all doing most or attempting to do a specific area of work for the Lord. And so here's what I want us to capture this morning. We can all be unified in purpose, but at times our motives can be suspect. That there are and is a sense that as these things are being and happening, that there are always some level of fringe elements that aren't really bought into the cause of the truth of the gospel. It happens outside of us, and we'll, we'll get to that in a second, but also inside of us. Often we're looking at the situation, and, and even in Nehemiah, they're building the wall. And have you ever asked yourselves, well, what's going on in their heart? I bet that there's a, a purity that exists. They desire to honor God. But I think there's also a sense embedded in that reality that they can't wait to be finished so they can say, look what we've done for God. See, I think sometimes we can think of the project over the designer of the project. We can think about the outcomes of what God or what might be happening because we have a perceived outcome of what we want it to look like. And often we end up missing the reality that the primary objective of God in the work is intimacy with him. That's the objective. Being drawn into a closer walk with God. An intimate, abiding, life-giving, life-affirming, transformative work in each of those who are engaging in that work. So certainly it's great that the walls are being built. But the life-transforming reality in people's hearts is, the, is God's primary objective. So uh, again, it's sort of getting off the soapbox and moving into the trenches. We realize that things can kind of get pretty messy as we start to work together. Verse 1 just absolutely just surgically went directly into my heart as I was wrestling with it this week. Look at what it says. Then Eliashib, the high priest. We know his role, right? High priest is one that's functioning as a representative uh, from God to man and from man to God. He stands in the gap. And, he, and what he does is he, he represents God in terms of uh, here's how God desires his people to live. Here are the things that we should do. He is one of those guys that stands as, as someone who says, God desires these things of you. And then he, he does the sacrifices. He draws people into worship. He communicates that God has standards and cares about his holiness. And then he communicates to the people about God. And he's saying, God, there's a, an aspect of God's love and patience and justice. He desires intimacy with you. There's a drawing that he has high priestly role is one of those roles that has so much prominence and so much significance in the religious worship of the nation of Israel. But, but that's not what he does. Look what it says. Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers, the priests, these people who had a very, very clear avenue and lane to run in. They had a duty and a job, and that duty was clear from the very beginning. Their role was set. But here's what they did. They and they built the sheep gate. I love this, because I think this is the heart of what God is getting at 
for each and every single one of us as we walk through the study of Nehemiah. And here it is, and I I, kind of hope that it's a bit of a prick inside of each of our hearts. Like it really does just sort of nail us in a way that helps us realize the work is God's and not ours. That we're not moving for prominence or prestige. We're about primarily God himself. No task is below anyone who positions the Lord as primary. No task, I I didn't expect amens on that one, but no no task is below those who position themselves, uh, position the Lord as primary. Meaning that we're not above any of it. That God generates a sense that what we desire is the glory of God to be revealed throughout all of the world. And whether you're a high priest or a janitor, there is nothing that you and I are above. We don't maintain a position and say, oh, that work is too low for me. I'm not interested in doing that. I've been here too long. I've done this too much. It's, it's, it's someone else's turn. That is not the heartbeat of scripture because what it is, is it's about self-reliance and self-preservation. I want what I want. I like what I like. Someone else can do it and I'll fade to the background. That is not the ministry and the work that God has called any of us to as followers of Christ. Why? Because the primary goal is not the work. The primary goal is God and intimacy with him and his glory. So the more we work, the more we realize areas that God is changing us so that we can then connect with him on a more intimate level. There is no coasting. There's no spiritual retirement. You're in, you're in. And there is nothing, no task too menial for the followers of Christ if the Lord is primary. Amen. I mean, each and every one of us can consider the fact that we would think our value is positional. It's not. Our value is relational. Because we are connected with Jesus Christ and he is the chief shepherd of this church, whatever task is before us, we encounter with the spirit of service as Jesus had that spirit of service washing his disciples' feet. No task was too menial for him. Why do we think we're any better? Why do we think that we get to rise above in some hierarchy that the pastor doesn't have to clean the seats and wash the toilets? No. Every single one of us, if it's done for the glory of God, there is no task too menial. That if the Lord is primary, every task has eternal significance because we're doing it for the Lord. I want the heart of Eliashib. I do. I believe that that gives us an indication of what the Lord is doing in our lives. If we find ourselves positioned in a place, and now we're going to move to the guys that did this, positioned in a place where we would say, no, I'm out. I'm, I have better skill sets. <laughs> That's for other people to do. That's the very point that the Lord is working to dismantle pride in our lives and self-reliance. Our heart and desire to serve those around us for the glory of God is an indication of where we're at in our intimacy with the Lord. That there is no one or nothing, no too small a task when the Lord is primary. But As we see those who are building the wall, 
there are those that have not bought in. There are those who are convinced that their significance and their position then gives them a free pass to not have to jump in. Look with me, if you will. I think it's in verse 5. Yep, and next to the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. (laughs) It's not even about serving others for these guys. It's about an overinflated view of their own (laughs) self-importance. I mean, these guys are predominant self-promoters, right? They're like, do you realize who I am? Do you realize how significant I am in the context of all of these things? My nobility precludes me from having to be involved. I don't have to get messy. And they wouldn't stoop to serve the Lord. See, that's what it's ultimately about. When we find ourselves struggling with whether or not God has called us to serve and to commit and to engage in the suffering and the challenges and the difficulties and even just the operational realities around us as a body of Christ, the answer is yes, he's called you to serve. Of course he has. Every single, has, every single person has gifts and it's for the edification of the body that, that God is working for his glory and all of those things. But then we say, well, we really, God is working and we really, really need help here. Oh, that's, that's not my calling, right? I don't like dealing with little babies, right? I don't be in the nursery. It's just it's crazy. It's just too much. I've, I've done my time. I'm, I'm better somewhere else or, you know, any of those other places where we think about the work that God is doing and what he's building here. We're realizing that there are so many opportunities to engage in what is actually being built, which is the hearts and minds of the older generation, the younger generation, our generation, the next generation, that, that God, is, God is building worshipers of God. How could we not want to be a part of that? Whatever that means. And you're like, how is changing a diaper about building into the next generation? Again, there's developing this relational connection of opening our lives to being used by God in whatever way he sees fit. And there is no task too meaningful, menial if the Lord is primary. But often we choose not to jump in because It is outside of areas of comfort or self-protection. Pride will force us not to participate. That's what the men and the nobles of Tekoa did. Elevating ourselves confirms our own blindness. We never too good for the work of the Lord. Project over position. (laughs) The work of the Lord above and beyond our own self-satisfaction. I think that's a key element as he continues to move. Verse 8 was one of the ones I wanted to look at just real briefly. And, and you'll see that, that they're all working in, in unity. So he keeps saying, you know, next to them, this guy was working. And next to them, this guy was working. And next to him, these people were working. That everyone was doing and involved in the project in very significant and real ways. And, and here's what's significant about those things. Not only do we look at the high priest, Eliashib, and him just saying, you know what, I'm in. Whatever the work is of the Lord, I, I, don't, I don't have to be in a position. I'm helpful. I'm, I'm glad to build the sheep gate. I, I'm all for it. And then he tells us that there were other people that were involved, and he gives us their vocations. Some were goldsmiths. And you're like, okay, 
I can see how a goldsmith could be used. It makes sense how a goldsmith can be used to, to, to make a gate. But then there were perfumers, the Bible says, ointment makers, people that had worked kind of like an apothecary making these ointments and it's not essential oils, just so you know, but doing all of these things to be able to, 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 to work. And so their previous vocation didn't preclude them from serving in ways that they might not felt like they even had the ability to do. How does a perfumer know how to build a sheep gate? <laughs> because we're working together as a team and our heart is to serve the Lord, we're open to learn new things beyond what we thought we knew. It's a heart of service, a heart of compassion and kindness, a desire to move in those regards. Verse 8 says this, Next to Uziel, the son of Harahiah, goldsmith repaired, and next to Hanahiah, one of them, uh, one of the perfumers repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Everybody had a place. Everybody was involved. There is no such thing as work or sidelining ourselves. All of us in the work of God have a part to play. Oswald Chambers said it this way, there is no such thing as prominent service or obscure service. It's all the same with God. I think he's right that all of us become aware of what's going on in our hearts as we're in the process of serving and seeing what God is doing and, and allowing us to see how God is working in another person's life, the work that he's called us to do, to look back and say, God is going to receive the glory from all of these things. And so it's not about the people of God accomplishing a project for God. It's about the people of God being open to allow their hearts to be built and to be changed so that they are ready and compelled to serve the life-giving God of the universe. Verses 13 and 14, and I'll finish with these. I think this is a, a critical component of what ends up happening as we as followers of Christ deeply desire to be used by God in ways and be changed by God in ways. Hanum, the son and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate and they rebuilt it and set its doors and its bolts and its bars and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Okay, there's a gate. It's about poop. That's pretty much what it is. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to just make this up, but that's exactly where these things go as it made its way down to the valley of Kidron. There's this place where that's essentially where all those things went, but it needed a gate. Who gets that job? right? I mean, that's really the question is like, is everyone positioned and you just get, you draw the short straw? That's not what the Bible tells us. Look what happens in verse 14. He makes his name, another one of the 50, Malkajajah, Malkajah, there you go. The son of Rechab, ruler of the district of, yep, Beth <laughs> Hakaram, there we go, repaired the dung gate. He built it, set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Apparently the Dungate is a one-man job, but nonetheless, there's a sense in which we don't get motives or understanding. We don't know whether he's like, oh man, I drew the, drew the short straw. You're getting a sense that everybody is engaged in the work wherever the work might be, and, and there's something significant in that, that the location of our service cultivates the hearts of our service. 
Like, where do we find ourselves in that sense of willingness as God compels and calls us to, to move towards his glory and, and not our own? There's this cultivation that the Lord is doing, and, and often our hearts are on the operating table. It's both in preparation for the work and during the work that God is constantly moving us and changing us towards himself. There's a bigger picture here that I think the Lord is driving us to. And that, that picture really is where we place the Lord in the primacy of our lives. I mean, we realize that there's a lot of things like we started off this morning, challenges, difficulties, wondering if we have any capabilities. Maybe we self-reject. Maybe we think we're better than most. Well, whatever might be going on in any of our hearts, the goal is to say, the, the Lord wants your attention. And we Fix your attention, whether before the work or during the work. He wants you to know, and he wants me to know, that it's ultimately about him. And he doesn't share the platform with anyone. <laughs> He's worthy of all attention and all affection. And it's his work. There are no celebrities in the kingdom of God. It's not about being famous or significant. It's about communicating, preaching, and living as though Jesus is the only one who is significant. Many would call Nehemiah chapter 3 a list. Some of us and some of the scholars would look back and say this is a historical event that took place in the life of God's people. Fifty names assembled as the wall was being built. Stone upon stone, gate upon gate. Jared next week will be talking about the opposition that happens as people do the work of God in all of those things. But chapter three feels like a list. 50 people who for a moment in time had their names etched in the eternal pages of scripture. I honestly don't think it's a list. I think it's church. I think that's what he's getting at. That a community of committed followers of Jesus Christ will be called to do the work of the Lord for his glory in every generation until he returns. This is about the people of God being changed by the work of God for the glory of God. The people of God being changed by the work of God for the glory of God. How can we not just find ourselves surrendering to the joy that God cares enough to not only call us to a work that is of eternal significance, but to do work in us as an intimacy-building, life-changing reality that there is this tender care of God for his people that not only compels them to work, but to focus on the glory and to serve others. Romans 12.10, outdo one another in what? Being better than anyone else? Watching the over 30s crush the under 30s in the football game? I mean, I was, that's, that's, okay, I confess my pride. Nonetheless, we did win and it was awesome. But in the process of those things, all of that, what, what, what God compels us to is to realize that we want to make Jesus the most significant. We outdo one another in showing honor 
That there is such a deep value of those who in silence, maybe we don't even know these prayer warriors of the church that are pleading for each other and for you on God's way. You don't even know the amount of people that are specifically praying for your situation. Here's what I'd also say. We don't know how to pray if we don't know your situation. And, and, And as we're intimately bound together, these 50 people, these 50 names that are written in Nehemiah 3 aren't just so that their names could be inscribed on the pages of Scripture to be remembered through all of history. So that we would remember that God calls us as a people. This is church. This is what it's about. Doing the work of God as the people of God for the glory of God. Let's pray.